DiscerningHearts.com presents Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis. Dr. Lewis is an associate professor and the academic dean of St. John's Seminary in Camarillo, California, as well as the academic advisor for the Juan Diego House of Priestly Formation for the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Through the years, clergy, seminarians, religious, and lay faithful have benefited from his lectures and retreat conferences on the Carmelite Doctors of the Church and the writings of Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity. Dr. Lillis is also the author of Hidden Mountain Secret Garden, a theological contemplation of prayer. In this series of conversations with Dr. Lillis, we reflect on the writings of Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity. Her retreat, entitled The Last Retreat, is the source of our current reflection. Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We now continue our conversation on the 10th day of the last retreat by Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity. Blessed Elizabeth is inviting us to sing, I Will Awake the Dawn. And this is the beautiful thing about living in the eternal moment of God's presence. When you live in the eternal moment of God's presence, every moment is filled with hope. Because when you're in that eternal presence, you are living in communion with the source of all things new. And there is always something, the Father always is about a new work, something unrepeatable and surprising, a new day, a new dawn. When you live in the eternal presence, you get to see the new dawn. You get to see the new day that is being born in this moment, right here, right now. That's the deepest truth of the world. If we say the deepest truth of the world is, is God's love, God's love is not static. God's love is always fruitful in new ways. So what does that mean? That means a soul that lives with an attitude of adoration, a soul that is open and vulnerable to the awesome wonder of God, the splendor of His glory, a soul that establishes itself, makes all of it emotional life centered in that reality who is God. Such a soul is filled with so much hope because it knows that God is always about doing something astonishing and unexpected. And you don't know exactly what it is. You just know it's going to be very, very good. It's going to be powerful and beautiful and splendid. So it Exactly in your powerlessness, exactly because you're letting go of the present moment and you're not trying to control it or manipulate it so that you can overcome your anxiety and manage the host of other problems you have in life, exactly because you've totally surrendered it all, let yourself be vulnerable uh, to the awesomeness of God in this present moment, by doing that have acquired this attitude of adoration, completely stripped you are able to see the beautiful and new thing that God is doing. And the praise that you're able to render God in that moment, the acknowledgement of his goodness and his beauty, of his pure wonder and delight, this is what the world needs. The way people who do not know God experience time, it's kind of a drudgery, a monotony, a cycle that goes on and on and on. And that's why with such a worldview, you can't love life because life itself is a drudgery, a burden, and you, you have as much fun as you can. You manage the problems you can manage, and then you find an escape from it all. 
And that kind of logic leads to things like abortion and euthanasia. Because why would you want to bring new babies into a world that was so dark? And, and why would you struggle to stay present in this present moment if it was just drudgery and no purpose and no meaning? If ultimately it was just suffering? The person who lives with their present moment vulnerable to the awesome wonder of God, that is the person that awakes the dawn. And even as they struggle to breathe their last breath and are in the agony of their final heartbeat, they're invincible in their hope. They can't be overcome. They see the love of the Father, and they see the love of the Father in that present moment, and their last heartbeat becomes a gentle surrender into His arms. They love life, and they love babies. They love all the forms of life, especially the life that struggles to be here, because somehow in that life that struggles to be here, God, the Father, the fruitfulness of His love is present right there, and they want to be where He is. They want to awake the dawn. A soul, though, that's preoccupied with its own uh, sorrows and concerns and this contention and that argument, such a soul isn't free to awake the dawn. It's closed itself off to wonder. It's choked out adoration from its life. Such a soul is very, very susceptible to being pushed around by all the circumstances of the moment. They'll never be able to raise rise above the present moment, they'll never be able to awake the dawn because the circumstances of the present moment have really enslaved them. Elizabeth is offering us through a contemplative prayer that is not afraid of solitude or silence. She is offering us a new kind of freedom. Well, Anthony, you bring up a a very important point, I think, that everyone is called to be contemplatives. Am I correct? At least contemplatives in the world. Yeah, I think that not everyone is called to the contemplative life as such. It's a very powerful and beautiful vocation in the church. I think more people are called to it than respond to it. But I do know this. Everyone can avail themselves to to experience this beautiful kind of prayer we call contemplative prayer. That that contemplative prayer, uh, even if you're not called to be a contemplative in a religious community, Contemplative prayer is something that is available to anyone. It's part of the gift of our baptism. It's When we were baptized, we, we received the sevenfold gift of the Spirit and the gifts of knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. These are contemplative gifts, meaning in the soul of everyone who's baptized, there are dispositions to be moved by the Holy Spirit, a propensity to be moved by the Holy Spirit, that can at any moment steep the soul in the deepest kind of prayer, the deepest kind of union. And all God needs is a little, a little freedom, a little space in our hearts to accomplish this beautiful work. And, and, but that means whether we're in the cloister or we're in the world, we need to work to give God that space in our hearts. Uh, and that's what this stripping is. And so what you're saying, Chris, is right, that people in the world can have contemplative prayer be part of their of the way they live. And in our culture where there's so little space for solitude or silence, trying to make space in our hearts for contemplative prayer is a greater struggle, but it's also a source of greater fruitfulness. People who will take up that struggle, they'll find additional resources to be able to face life. So to come back to your question then, you know, I don't see how somebody who lives in the world can get through life without being contemplative. 
if you don't have moments for contemplative prayer in your life, I don't see how you get through life and survive. To be a good Christian means to make space in our life to be moved by the Holy Spirit and with wisdom and understanding and knowledge. That it requires solitude and it requires periods of silence. John Paul II said that mature souls long for silence. Well, now here we go. This is an area that I think a lot of people struggle with too, Anthony, is silence. It's almost an agony to have to sit in silence. Well, and that's the gift of entering into solitude and silence is not easy at first because there's a lot of things that we don't like to confront in our hearts in the beginning. Elizabeth says this, she says, The divine being lives in an eternal, immense solitude. He never leaves it though concerning himself with the needs of his creatures, for he never leaves himself. And this solitude is nothing else than his divinity. And what she's saying is, what characterizes the inner life of God is self-possession. Not a self-possession that's turned in on itself. She says there's still concern for creatures. But God the Father has perfect self-possession. Only when we have perfect self-possession can we really give ourselves. And sometimes it's hard to want to be alone with God because we suffer in our solitude a lack of self-possession. When we enter into solitude, we become aware of our lack of inner integrity. We become aware of the ways that we've compromised ourselves. And that's an uncomfortable thing to see. But the reality is only when we begin to see what is a matter, what needs to be healed in our life, when we begin to see how uh, the wholeness we lack and that we need, only then when we see that we need a Savior to restore our integrity, only then do we begin to create the space for God to do that great work in us. When we live our lives continually dissipated by all the circumstances of the present moment, and we let ourselves become unaware of the lack of integrity, the lack of self-possession that we have, we're vulnerable to all kinds of irrational forces all the time. Our love then is weakened and becomes insipid and mediocre. And what the world needs now, what those whom God has entrusted to us most need now, they don't need mediocre love. They need great love. Only great love, the love that God gives us, is salvific, can save the world. If we lack the courage to go in and face our lack of self-possession, our, our, our lack of integrity, and surrender that to God, beg God with tears to, to restore our integrity, to strengthen our, our self-possession. If we're not willing to do that, we can't really give the world a, a word of hope. Uh, but those souls that will be courageous in that way, God can use them to do great things. They can transform marriages and families and whole communities because they're willing, they have the courage to go into solitude and silence and deal with themselves and let God deal with them. So Elizabeth says, 
so that nothing may draw me out of this beautiful silence within. I must always maintain the same dispositions, the same solitude, the same withdrawal, the same stripping of self. If my desires, my fears, my joys, or my sorrows, if all of the movements proceeding from these four passions are not perfectly directed to God, I will not be solitary. There will be noise within me. There must be peace, sleep of the powers, the unity of being, This noise is this lack of integrity, this lack of self-possession, this lack of stability of heart. I mean, keep in mind, Elizabeth is a, a musician. She was a, a, an award-winning pianist, and so her ears is accustomed to things being in tune. Uh, when things are out of tune, she would notice. Well, she's using that as an analogy for our heart. Our hearts are meant to be perfectly in tune. And that means we need to get rid of the, the noise. And what is the noise? The noise is when I let myself be inordinately moved by the circumstances of the present mo moment. What does it mean, inordinately? Well, inordinate means it's not ordered properly. And the circumstances of the present moment, when they drive me, they're always driving against my integrity. They're always undermining my self-possession. A soul suffering from this kind of lack of integrity would be subject to angry outbursts, for example, or being disciplined in the spiritual life for a period of time and then backsliding in some big way with some sort of habitual sin will come up and grab you. Well, if somebody's struggling with that, it means there's a lot of noise in the heart. And the reason why the noise is in the heart is because we haven't been established yet in this awe of God's love. When we are established in the awe of God's presence, in the, in the wonders of his love, that kind of solitude, that strengthens our ability to withdraw and not be influenced by the circumstances of the present moment. It strengthens our ability even to withdraw from our own big fat egos. You know, our, our big fat egos are always looking for security. They're always looking to be the center of attention. They're always looking for comfort. They're looking for power over others. They're looking for influence. They're looking to possess and to take. That needs to be surrendered to God. It needs to be crucified so that we live no longer I, but the life of Christ in us. So this is what she's talking about then in terms of her desires, her fears, her joys, and her sorrows. It's not that these things are completely gone from the heart. They are always there. But rather than driving me to a lack of self-possession, rather than undermining my integrity, these desires, can, she's talking about them being ordered to God so that I have a stability of character, a stability rooted in the peace of God's love that does not change. There must be peace, sleep of the powers, the unity of being, Sleep of the Powers is actually a reference to the teaching of St. Teresa of Avila in Spiritual Castle, but also her life. She talks about a development in the life of contemplative prayer. 
rather than being driven by my imagination, uh, uh, my what I understand or what I feel, it's as if these powers of, of feeling, of, of understanding, of imagining, they kind of fall asleep before an elation of God's love, a, um, a kind of holy inebriation grabs the soul, where the soul is so wrapped up in the spirit, it forgets itself completely. Its love uh, increases because of God's presence to it in a beautiful and powerful way. So it, it's not thinking the way it should. Uh, Teresa Vavila, she says, such a soul is so filled with jubilation that it wants to shout out for joy, shout the praises of God, because it's been so touched by his presence. John of the Cross in uh, Spiritual Canticle 26, he also talks about this will. It should be known that the teaching of, of some that the will's inability to love what the intellect does not first know ought to be understood naturally. Naturally, it is impossible to love without first understanding what is love. But supernaturally, God can easily infuse and increase love without the infusion or increase of particular knowledge. And this is the experience of a lot of souls, as St. John of the Cross says, is that there's a presence of God that increases our love, our imagination, our intellect, our feelings can rest in that, can sleep in that. And, and so instead of driving us, they just kind of are at peace. This is what Elizabeth is trying to point us through to in, in entering into silence. Do you see what this means then? Chris, what you brought up before is that some people are afraid of silence or not comfortable entering into solitude for longer periods of time. And I posited that that's possibly because when you first go into solitude, there's very hard things to face. But what Elizabeth is saying here now is that as we begin to face those things with the Lord, you become so enamored with the beauty of God uh, he strikes your heart so deeply that it becomes easier and easier to let go of things that are undermining your sense of integrity, your undermining self-possession. And as that happens, it's, it's almost like the uh, contentious things that were moving your intellect before or your passions before. They kind of, they're not there anymore. Your, your intellect, your emotional life rests in the presence of God. And for Elizabeth of the Trinity, this is the normal mode a soul should be in. A soul should be resting in the presence of God. It should simply just be with God. Instead of a lot of inner conflict characterizing the life of the soul, the soul should find peace in the presence of God. And this, this is what she's inviting us to. It's interesting that she would speak of, in those feelings, of not just sorrow knocking us off kilter, but also joy, that everything has to have balance. What she's not talking about isn't so much like an, an absence of, of desires, fears, joys, and sorrows. She's saying that all these movements uh, need to be perfectly ordered to God. They're perfectly directed to Him. And so the balance isn't like somewhere between feeling something too much and feeling something too little. If our desires are for the wrong thing, they're always out of balance. If we're afraid about the wrong thing, our fear is always out of balance. It's always misdirected. You know, there's 
there is a proper fear of hell and and a proper fear of God that should inform our heart in the in the way we live. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There is a proper desire that, and it, you can never have too much. You can never have too much desire for God, and you can never have too much desire to do His will, and you can have never have too much desire that other people know God. <laughs> you know, and so it's not balanced in terms of of trying to find the middle ground between greater or lesser intensity that be stoicism. In Christianity, we can have uh, sorrows and that are deep, deep, heartbreaking sorrows, but we're not overcome by those sorrows. We're not paralyzed by our sorrows. We're not discouraged by our sorrows. We've ordered our sorrow to God. Sorrow is when we're deprived of some good that we love, some good that we desire. When we don't have a good that we desire, the movement of sorrow aches over the fact that we don't have the thing we desire. Well, if you desire the right thing and you don't have it, you should ache a lot, you know, not a little. You, the great saints were people who bore great sorrows. So what would a, a great saint be sorrowful for? A great sor- saint would be sorrowful for the fact that they want to know God more than they can by faith. They want to see him face to face, but that's waiting for us in the life to come. And so they, they suffer not seeing him. And this, this is an overbearing sorrow. It can almost be overbearing, except that God supplies the patience to be able to bear it. Other things the great saints suffer is they suffer a thirst for souls. They want everyone to know the saving power of God, the joy of knowing him. They see God so rejected, and that causes a great sorrow. Well, their sorrow over God's rejection and their sorrow over not yet being able to see the face of God, they could never have too much of that sorrow. That's a beautiful sorrow to have. And so Elizabeth, she's not promoting Buddhism here. She's talking about sorrows and joys, fears and desires, all oriented to God. And when they're not oriented there, when that emotional energy in our heart is not directed to God, then it creates this noise inside, and it robs us of the ability to be at peace in the presence of God. You know, this is a beautiful examination. You know, what's rocking my boat? If part of what's rocking your boat doesn't have anything to do with God, then why are you letting it rock your boat? Renounce it. Let it die so that there's room for peace. She goes on to quote a very famous scripture verse. I think it's from Psalm 44. Listen, my daughter. Lend your ear. Forget your people and your father's house and the king will become enamored of your beauty. It seems to me that this call is an invitation to silence. Listen. Lend your ear. But to listen, we must forget our father's house, that is, everything that pertains to the natural life. This life to which the Apostle refers to when he says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. To forget your people is more difficult, I think. For this people is everything which is, so to speak, part of us. Our feelings, our memories, our impressions, etc. Our self, in a word. 
We must forget it, abandon it. And when the soul has made this break, when it is free from all that, the king is enamored of its beauty. For beauty is unity. At least it is the unity of God. What makes this passage so powerful is that a new doctor of the church, his name is John of Avila, his master spiritual work was written to help direct someone to know God better. The whole book is a reflection on this verse, listen, my daughter, and lend your ear. So in spiritual theology, this verse has become very important for those who are studying John of Avila. And Elizabeth's interpretation of this, although not quite a summary of John of Avila's teaching, it's definitely in harmony with what John of Avila has, um, has presents in his reflection. Uh, to listen, we must forget our Father's house, that is, everything that pertains to the natural life. This life that the Apostle says, uh, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And to forget your people is more difficult, for this people is everything which is, so to speak, part of us, our feelings, our memories, our impressions, the self in a word. We must forget it, abandon it, and when the soul has made that break, when it is free from all of that, the king is enamored of its beauty. Well, how can the soul forget, on one hand, its natural life, the life of the flesh, the the life of the day-to-day work world, and how can it forget movements of its own heart? For Elizabeth of the Trinity, it's because this soul has already been captivated by the love of God. It yearns for the love of God. The more we yearn for the love of God, the easier it is to forget, the easier it is to enter into solitude and silence. Such a powerful day, this 10th day of the last retreat. I wish we had more time, Anthony. Final thoughts? The very last sentence, I think, is so mysterious. For beauty is unity. At least it is the unity of God. So beauty is the unity of God. Now here's the beautiful thing about the unity of God. The unity of God is not the unity of an abstract absolute, the unity of an atom that can't be divided. The unity of God is a unity of love. Uh, From the solitude of the Father is begotten the Son, and from the Father and the Son is, is breathed the Holy Spirit. And they live in a, in a circumcession of love in one divine nature, yet they are three divine persons. We call that subsistent relations. That um, They are real persons who freely love, are conscious of one another. It's, they're not in subordinationism, an ancient heresy. They're not uh, three different appearances of God. They are three divine persons, true persons. And they live together in a fellowship of love. And that unity of love is, is what is beautiful. It's the most beautiful thing of all. And out of this beauty and out of this love, all of visible creation is ushered forth. And Elizabeth is saying that if we will look to that unity of love, a, a, a unity that goes beyond um, uh, uh, some dry, cold absolute, a unity that is a true friendship, true exchange of hearts, if we will look above this world to that unity, we will find the secret of living in this world, of being in this world, in a way that gives glory to God. Because that unity of love 
we're in the image and likeness of it. And the more we see it, the more we make space for it in our lives by renouncing everything that is not in accord with it, not in harmony with it, the more that reality can shine through us and transform everything that is in the glory of God. Thank you so much, Anthony. Thank you, Chris. God bless you. You've been listening to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis. To hear and or to download this episode, along with many others, go to discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of discerninghearts.com. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Join me next time for Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis.